KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Katha Pollitt will talk about a new book of advice for men, Jordan Peterson's international bestseller, Rules for Life. Rule number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. And our TV critic, Ella Taylor, will review In the Heights, the new Lin-Manuel Miranda musical on HBO Max about Dominicans in Washington Heights singing and dancing at the north end of Manhattan. But first, our Washington update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, we need to talk about the Green New Deal, but I'd like to start with the current Republican attacks on voting because they're doing something new. They're not just making it harder to vote, but they are trying to make it easier for Republican judges and state legislatures to declare Republicans the winners of elections where they don't have a majority of the votes to reverse the results of elections they have lost. Uh, this is scary. And this is in addition to all the other things they do to make it harder and harder to vote, harder to get a mail ballot, harder to drop off a mail ballot, cutting down the days for early voting and all of that. But I have spoken with some skeptics who say a lot of this is grandstanding by candidates seeking to prove who is the most devoted to Trump and that a lot of it will be hard to get to work in practice. Uh, and it will certainly fire up our side. People like Michael Bloomberg and George Soros will spend billions, as they did last time around, to register new Democratic voters under whatever the, hard, the harder rules are. Democratic candidates will raise more billions in five, $10, $25 donations to fund huge voter registration drives now and huge get out the vote drives during the election season next year. The skeptics point out that all of the new Republican laws that made it harder to vote in 2020 backfired. Democratic turnout was the highest in history uh, in 2020. We had double digit turnout gains in a lot of places. In Arizona, the turnout, I looked the figures up, rose from 60% to 72%. And that was because of the work done by our friends in Unite Here and their local allies. New Jersey turnout increased from 61 to 78% Democratic turnout. Uh, all but nine states showed turnout gains for their 18 to 29 year old populations. You know, I could go on. So maybe the biggest effect of Republican efforts to attack voting and make it harder to vote will be the backlash that will lead to more Democrats voting. Or maybe I am being a Pollyanna as usual. Well, let me let me try to unpack that. First of all, uh, uh, thanks to some very fine reporting, we know that the above mentioned uh, Michael Bloomberg and George Soros have the additional billions to spend because we know that they pay virtually nothing in taxes. That's another yes. recent yes. story. A, a distinguished Good. list of Americans headed by, turns out Warren Buffett of all the billionaires has actually paid the least in taxes. So I know that's a tangential point, but since you opened that door, 
I wanted to roll through it with a large tank. If it well, all of course, Warren yes. Buffett has always said he pays at a lower rate than his secretary, but it seems yeah. like the total that he pays may be lower than lower his secretary. than that of his secretary. That's right. So to to unpack that, I think you're absolutely right in terms of what the Democratic response to the voter suppression component of what we're seeing uh, will be. Uh, the legislative overruling of the election obviously becomes harder if the Democrats win by a considerable margin, but it seems to me that poses a really interesting test for uh, conservative judges and conservative justices on the United States Supreme Court. Now, I mean, traditionally it is the states that more or less write their own election laws. But With the exception, seems- there was one exception, of course. Uh, yes, uh, Bush v. Gore, <laughs> Bush uh, where v. Gore. the court overruled the state of Florida. Uh, so, but, that we, but the court said this shouldn't apply to any other elections. Yeah, right. Uh, well, uh, we shall we we shall see. Uh, but it seems to me that if the court is confronted with a law that enables the legislature to overturn the voters, uh, the court really faces a conundrum between. Uh, its Republican uh, sentiment, which clearly six of the nine justices uh, have in abundance, and uh, their sense of whether America will become uh, really no longer be a democracy and whether the court will be fingered as a uh, major uh, player in the drive to keep it uh, uh, undemocratic and to make it more undemocratic. It seems to me that, you know, from what little we know of the mind of John Roberts, he is concerned about the reputation of the court. He would need one other Republican justice who is more concerned about that reputation and America's claim to small d democratic status than uh, he uh, is to. Uh, ongoing uh, Republican hegemony. And so I I think that is, you know, the acute peril. And I think in a way, it's also an acute peril for the Supreme Court. So we shall see. The the laws that would permit uh, various Republican bodies to overturn electoral majorities have different strategies. The Texas one, which hasn't passed as at least as of today, uh, lowers the threshold of evidence that judges consider when deciding whether to overturn an election. The Georgia one, which has passed, allows state officials to replace county election officials. <clears throat> of course, it's the county officials who actually run the elections, maintain the registration list, and declare the winners in those counties. So. If you change the county officials, somebody new could declare a different person the winner, but it's a very long, complicated process that the Georgia legislature passed. They have to appoint a commission to investigate a county. The commission has to conclude that the county electoral election commission was underperforming in elections, kind of a vague idea. This has, takes 30 days or 90 days or something. That, of course, is subject to judicial review. Again, perhaps even the Supreme Court. So you get the picture. There isn't a clear road to do this in an easy way, at least the way the Republican strategists are now working. 
And of course, in Republican-dominated states and Republican-dominated localities, those election officials to begin with are likely Republican. And if they uh, behave like uh, Brad Raffensperger behaved in the presidential election, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, who refused to submit to the uh, entreaties and threats of Donald Trump himself and others, uh, you know, then uh, this becomes really problematic for those who seek to replace them. Uh, and we have to hope that there will be a number of such officials around. Yeah, it's a tortuous process. And you have to wonder how this will look, not simply to Democratic and independent voters, but even to Republican voters, because the notion of a clear majority being overturned, I mean, you know, it's a kind of thing that essentially Fox News and Newsmax and such are, are preparing Republicans to accept. Uh, even so, it's, it's, I think will strike uh, even some Republicans as a little much. Uh, th that may be over-optimistic too, given the Joseph Goebbels-like uh, tendencies of Fox <laughs> News. Uh, and, you know, I, I've always, I, I, I've long sort of thought that what protesters should be doing is parading in front of Rupert Murdoch's uh, penthouse in Manhattan and Lachlan Murdoch's Bel Air mansion with a sign that simply say, Joseph Goebbels lives here. Uh, <laughs> because really, uh, yeah. this is the most widespread propagation of, uh, of a big lie uh, at, you know, at a Goebbels-esque uh, scale uh, that uh, this country has ever seen. Yeah. Well, of course, I can imagine one other possibility. Um, Democratic votes in Republican states tend to come from a couple of counties. You know, in Georgia, it's Atlanta. Right. In Arizona, it's Phoenix. Right. Uh, so let us suppose that in those counties, the county officials say in Atlanta were replaced by the state legislature and they declared a different winner. Well, then the county uh, officials presumably would sue that they were not underperforming and this would be going through the courts. But in the meantime, uh, it would we would be uncertain as to who was president of the United States and that things would just be uh, screwed up for a while with uncertain results. And that is the sort of thing that people like Trump know how to take advantage of. Yes, absolutely. And so, I mean, chaos is, uh, is their friend, uh, even when it is they who have created the chaos. So uh, it, it, you know, it, so it advantages them uh, to muck around like this and that much they clearly understand. So let's talk about the Green New Deal. How are we doing in moving towards a Green New Deal? I know you see some problems and not just from Republican opposition. Right. Well, you know, what the Republican opposition has done is basically uh, lay, put a branding on the Green New Deal that it is just one more element in the liberal elite's culture war against uh, American tradition. Uh, that is... Uh, since that is directed at a population that is rather indifferent to fact, both to science and the economics behind the, uh, you know, the, the case for a Green New Deal, uh, that, that's uh, going to be difficult to dislodge. But there are a lot of folks who are skeptical of it because of, uh, they fear they will bear the, the, the burdens of the economic transition. And in this, uh, they, they may not be uh, at all wrong. Uh, historically, 
when we've had major sectoral uh, rises and falls in a nation's economy or in the world's economy, uh, there have been clear losers. Uh, the uh, people forced off their farms to had to go to work in the mills of Manchester uh, within the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the people who had union contracts working in, in the rail system here uh, as uh, trains gave way to cars and planes. Uh, the the uh, workers in the factories of the Midwest in the last 40 years who uh, saw those factories uh, shutter and then the work go abroad and who found that instead of working uh, as a unionized auto worker for 30 bucks an hour, uh, the job they could get would be as a Walmart greeter for nine bucks an hour. So historically, it's the transition for those folks that is the problem. And the transition has, has always been essentially left to the workings of the market. And that has led me to think that in making the case for the Green New Deal, uh, it's, it's not really the green part we need to stress. That is to say, uh, the green part is coming. I mean, you know, by fits and starts, but we've seen Exxon had three of its board of directors turned out by uh, uh, even, you know, Exxon institutional shareholders who feel the company should get more into uh, uh, non-fossil fuels, alternative energy sources. Uh, you know, it's, it's the market which has more or less doomed the coal industry as, as an economic non-starter after hundred year, hundreds of years of being sort of the main energy source. Um, so uh, really what we, I, I think the message has to be uh, not that we're going green, uh, but that we are go we are going green, and the choice is: do we go green, leaving the structure of all that to the market, or do we go green with a new deal that is devoted to uh, creating and finding and facilitating uh, employment for displaced workers and their families? that is comparable to or better than the employment they had before. That is really the variable. Um, you know, if, if I'm talking to a coal miner, if I'm talking to a laborer who works on oil pipelines, if I'm talking to uh, a member of what was the Oil, Chemical and Atomic Workers Union uh, working at a refinery, with, and that union has been merged long since into the steel workers, what I'm gonna say is not that, you know, the issue isn't whether we go green or not, the issue is whether you're going to be tossed out there like the factory workers of the Midwest, like the train employees, uh, or uh, whether we can create, uh, as the Biden administration is, is suggesting and is putting legislation forth, uh, whether we can create uh, under the auspices of a new deal, uh, you know, comparably uh, playing jobs with comparable benefits, if not better. Now, that's a lot easier said than done. Biden... <clears throat> Biden, as you say, has has proposed an infrastructure bill which recognizes this problem. He's learned a lot from AOC and Bernie and the Sunrise Movement. And the, uh, the Biden infrastructure bill made us all very excited and enthusiastic about all of the not just solar panels that were in it, but the, the social 
the social new deal that accompanies the Green New Deal. However, there's talk now of moving all that out of the infrastructure bill in the hopes of winning the votes of some moderate Republicans, in quotes, and putting them into a different bill. I mean, we are skeptical that we're going to win moderate Republican votes. Anyway, where do we stand on this right now? Well, the Democrats are moving on two tracks. Uh, on track one, uh, they are engaged in this uh, bipartisan process. Uh, the uh, committee of uh, either eight or 10 uh, with equal numbers of Republican senators and Democratic senators have submitted a proposal to the White House on which the White House uh, has not yet given a response. Uh, but that's out there. I still think more for appearances sake from the Democratic uh, Democrats' perspective, because the other track is Chuck Schumer uh, and Nancy Pelosi are committed to putting through the Biden plan uh, and uh, proceeding al along those lines uh, while this bipartisan stuff sort of hangs there. Uh, and we'll see where this goes. Uh, I mean, it is theoretically possible that you take the parts of the Biden plan that aren't in the bipartisan stuff and put it into uh, the, the other reconciliation package and, and that's how you get to it. And that's theoretically possible, but it's a bit of a crapshoot. <coughs> Whether you wanna take a crapshoot with something as important as this legislation is, is, is not at all clear. Uh, so I think the Democrats are gonna have to, at minimum, have a commitment from the centrist Democrats who were working on the bipartisan stuff, from Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, Mark Warner, John Tester, uh, that if they take that stuff out, they will all support it in a reconciliation package, which then would pass with 51 votes. Absent that, there is no reason to go forward, and there's still considerable reason to go forward even so with the bipartisan stuff. And last but not least, <clears throat> I want to go back to the election question and ask you about the Republican theory that the Italians switched votes in America that made Biden president. This is what they call hashtag Italygate. And Trump himself has been ta talking about this for a while now. Uh, there were new emails released by a House committee recently that showed Republicans, uh, Republican operatives have been claiming since January that the outcome of the election was orchestrated in the Rome embassy. I'm just going to tell you their theory here, uh, which they have claimed to have evidence for by a 20 year old, by a 20 year foreign service officer who quoting now coordinated with general Claudio Graziano, who is on the board of Leonardo, an Italian aerospace company, to use the firm's military satellite ump uplink loaded, located in Pescara, Italy, to load the software that would switch votes from Trump to Biden, especially in Michigan. I looked up Pescara. Where's Pescara? Pescara is a popular resort on the Adriatic, previously known for its jazz festival before this came up. I wonder what you think of the argument that Italian General Claudio Graziano used the satellite in Pescara to switch votes in America in Michigan that made Joe Biden president. Did the Italians do it? Well, I have no uh, firsthand knowledge either way. I would think it's likelier that General Graziano 
once tried to smuggle a cannoli uh, <laughs> into uh, uh, Boston's North End, which is famed for very good cannolis. I recommend them highly. Uh, I think there is a, you know, a substantially greater likelihood of that. And then, of course, when you smuggle a cannoli, it doesn't actually involve uh, satellite technology. So it's uh, at some level uh, simpler. Uh, on the other hand, if you get caught, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear either you did it or you didn't. So uh, I would I would suggest looking into that first. Thank you for not saying take the cannoli. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Katha Pollitt about advice for men. Katha, of course, is an award-winning poet, essayist, and columnist for the nation. We reached her today at home in New York. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, when I saw that your new column is about Jordan Peterson, I immediately had a question. Who is he? <laughs> You're not alone. My friends are so out of it. <laughs> they all have the same response. Who? Who? What are you talking about? Jordan Peterson is immensely famous. He His first book, uh, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, sold 5 million copies. I don't think you and I together sold even half of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, it's been sl it's slated for translation into 50 languages. But even more impressive than that, because a lot of people can buy a book and then, as you know, not read it. Um, his YouTube channel has get this 3.68 million subscribers. So you say these best-selling books are crammed with references to Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, the Bible, Jesus, and Jung. We're talking about big-time thinkers here. Uh, but what is the message that he finds in all these big-time thinkers? You say it's Men should work hard, be responsible, and make your bed. Not sure that's really what Jesus said, uh, <laughs> or Dostoevsky. But but Katha, what's wrong with saying men should be responsible? Isn't isn't that what you want too? Well, don't forget the ancient Mesopotamian deities and <laughs> Isis and Osiris, who also were probably not too big on making their beds and figure, <laughs> figure uh, significantly in this book. And we should mention he's the reason I wrote about him is there's a, a new volume. Yes. More rules, more, more rules. rules, 12 more rules for life. Um, well, I think, I think this book, um, the kind way of speaking about it is that it does speak to um, a great confusion that many men feel they, they want to, get with the program, but they don't really know how to do it. And they want a purpose in life and they don't have one. And of course, women want a purpose in life too. Um, but they're not, fewer of them are going to Jordan Peterson for that. Um, he's, he's also quite anti-feminist. Let's start at the beginning here. What is Jordan Peterson's rule number one? Stand up straight with your shoulders back. So, you're saying five million men paid $26 to be told stand up straight with your shoulders back? What What is going on here? That's not all. Uh, rule 12 is 
pet a cat when you encounter one on the street? Uh, and I, I see that reduced you to silence. I'm, still, well, I'm, a what? Big, I'm a big cat person, so I, I'm okay with that one. I like cats too, but I don't pat them on the street because they, a lot of them don't want to be patted by strangers. I know, but Jordan Peterson wouldn't care about that. <laughs> it's not about what the cat wants. I looked up the publicity for his new rules, his new book, and according to the publicity, the thesis, the book has a thesis, which is, too much security is dangerous, and that's because, quote, unchecked order can petrify us into submission. I, I think we have to agree that we do not want to be petrified into submission. Uh, yeah, he really has a way with words, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> but before I forget, I have to say that this book begins with a long, what he calls an overture in his pretentious way in which he discusses all his uh, his physical problems, um, where he was on this all-meat diet, which he was touting um, that this is just the best thing, just eat nothing but meat, just meat, 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 meat. And then he became very sick. Um, <laughs> and ended up, he ended up in a coma in Russia, and he was in this coma. And he was also addicted to um, various uh, prescription meds. And he talks about this on and on and on, See, people who write these books, How to Live, they very rarely have a lot of self-knowledge. That's probably why they think they can tell everybody else how to live. It's, they're not really paying attention. So he had this whole thing with meat and prescription meds. But nonetheless, you should still do everything he says. I think his basic thing, and I was very soft on him, although it doesn't seem that way because I was having fun and being kind of snarky, but... Basically, it appeals to the the kind of rigid anti-woman feelings that some men have where what they really want is a girlfriend and yet and they don't understand why they don't have a girlfriend. What's the matter with these horrible women? <laughs> I hate them. They won't be my girlfriend. Uh, so um, he basically so his other other rules have to do with things like, OK, work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing. And see what happens. So who could disagree with that? Who could um, disagree? And you could see how somebody's kind of adrift in life. That yeah, I should really find something I I like doing, and I should try to do it really well. Um, that's good. And then uh, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. Well, this is straight out of a women's magazine. <laughs> except I love plan and work diligently. That's some sort of militaristic approach to dating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last rule, be grateful in spite of your suffering. And what's interesting about that is that he acknowledges that people suffer. And yeah. I think in America, it's supposed it, we're supposed to be happy all the time. And if you have real serious troubles, you keep them inside. And we don't get a lot of acknowledgement mm -hmm. of, of loneliness of feelings of failure, of all your personal relationships being very difficult, um, all that. And and he he says, yeah, of course you're miserable, and I'm going to fix you. Yeah, well, you know, he does say, there's one other revealing thing related to that. The Amazon page for his new book has an excerpt that begins, don't do work that makes you contemptuous of yourself, 
feeling weak and ashamed, close quote. Now, of course, that's great advice, but it's interesting that he is acknowledging what many of his readers feel, that they feel weak and ashamed and, and contemptuous of themselves. That's pretty radical, as you say, for an American. It is not very American. It's not very manly. Manly is kind of the opposite of those things, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so I think you have a lot of people who feel their life isn't working out and they have to work at a job they hate and maybe they don't feel they're very good at it, but maybe those two things are related. And because people tend not to be really good at things that they don't enjoy or approve of. Um, feminists hate Jordan Peterson. Let's just get that on the table. They hate him. And in fact, the publishing company of this book, the hundreds of the young staffers signed a petition. Don't publish this. Oh, man. Um, oh, man. That wasn't going to happen, given that what his sales figures are. But so he's widely hated on the left and especially by feminists. And I think that's fair. Mm. I'm just amazed anybody can get through this book because it's so disastrously badly written. It's so tedious. It reminds me of like you probably have had students that postpone their paper until the night before. And, but the paper is long. It's like, you have to write 40 pages. And so they just put in everything, everything they have ever known or thought, everything they have read. And that's where you get all this crazy, you know, Isis and Osiris. I'm sure they can come in here somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another one that he brings in that I was sort of surprised to see is he, he has a thing about humans are a lot like lobsters. Oh, lobsters. Yeah. What does he mean by that? You can go to his website and there's all these lobster themed things you can buy, like a necktie, uh, a T-shirt, a cover for your cell phone with these little lobsters. (laughs) And uh, the T-shirt, I think, says hail lobster, maybe that or maybe that's the hat, hail lobster. So the lobster, according to him, is very much like people in the following way um, because of some neurological similarity the fact that lobsters are basically hostile and competitive and territorial means that that's the way people are. I saw that you mentioned this, and then I Googled what is the lobster personality, and the first thing that came up was, despite their warlike appearance, lobsters are actually sensitive and delicate animals. That's from the website animalsofaustralia.com. Well, so now I have to feel guilty again for eating lobster rolls. I was, I thought, I thought Jordan Peterson was giving me permission to have as many as I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Then I also found on Google that the Swiss government just passed the law stating people can no longer boil a lobster alive. I'm gobsmacked. What (laughs) they'll have to take that famous scene out of Annie Hall, remember? (laughs) (laughs) My point is, he seems to be wrong about lobsters. And many other things as and well. Many other things. For example, women. He said, <laughs> For just a t- yes. In in volume two, in the volume I'm discussing, he talks very little about feminism. There's only a f- couple of mentions because he, I think, because he got into so much trouble in book one talking about them and feminists. And so, but he says, you know, no matter what feminists say, I've seen it time and time again. What women, all women, basically want to have children. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. I think a lot of women wanted to have children, but, you know, maybe 80%. But it's not something all women want. 
But his thing is, okay, all women want to have children. They are being led up the garden path by feminism to focus on their careers. And then wham, bam, it's too late. You know, they've got fertility problems. But another problem they have is men. <laughs> that I, 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 This is your view. This is your view. This is well, my view. So, that the men so, that this book is written for are not really boyfriend material. Yeah, you you say the basic problem Jordan Peterson is addressing is that men are having a hard time getting quality girlfriends and now have to make more of an effort to be what you call boyfriend material. What uh what is the cause of this problem in your view? In my view, I I think that um they haven't really reckoned with a lot of men haven't really reckoned with feminism and what it requires of them they still are with the old mindset and then they're constantly surprised when women put them in the friend zone, for example. Um, At this point, I think we have to talk about incels, involuntary celibates. One of the most searched terms on Google last year, it turns out. What, What advice does Jordan Peterson have for incels? Do not allow yourself to become resentful, deceitful, or arrogant. That's rule 11. It's Good advice if you can follow it. But incels love Jordan Peterson. I think there's people like his militarism, his rigidity, his kind of straighten up and fly right, like my father used to say. They like, they want that old, that patriarchal thing. And it's not so easy to find that patriarchal thing in a psychologist, which is what he is. You have to go to, you know, a superhero movie to get that. But now you can have Jordan Peterson. Okay, you don't think Jordan Peterson is a good source of advice, despite the fact that he sold millions of books in dozens of languages. Uh, Have you got anything better to offer as wisdom for how to live these days? Well, um, my husband and I have been reading out loud for a very long time Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Now, I have to say that uh, the classicist I revere, Mary Beard, thinks the Stoics are terrible people. Um, They're fascists. Marcus Aurelius was just a major war maker, um, which he mentions occasionally in in the book. But I feel this book has been guiding people through the struggles of life for over a thousand years. And unlike Jordan Peterson, it's well-written and it's short. And at the end of my column, I summarize his advice. Okay, rule one. These are better rules than Jordan Peterson's. Rule one, try as hard as you can to be a good, responsible, serious person. Rule two, be aware that much of life is out of your control. You just have to accept that. And rule three, in any case, soon you will be dead. (laughs) Soon you will be dead. Katha Pollitt wrote about Jordan Peterson's advice for men in her latest column. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, I don't care what you say. I'm going to stand up straight from now on. Me too. And shoulders back. Shoulders back. (laughs) It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics thinking about the left. 
Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. It's sweltering in Santa Monica. Well, we've recommended a lot of sober documentaries over the last several months. How about a musical this week? How about young people singing and dancing? Yes, and they sing and dance a great deal in uh, in the Heights, which is uh, began its life as a stage musical by Lin Manuel Miranda and Chiara Allegria ten years ago um, on Broadway, and was a smash hit. For for that reason, um, it was expected to be a smash hit here, and so far is not. It's playing in the Heights. Is playing on in a bunch of theaters, quite a lot of theaters, but it's also available on HBO Max. The LA Times Sunday calendar was entirely devoted to the lack of Latino representation in Hollywood. Now, this is very weird given that uh, Latinos are now of, of one sort or another, uh, now make up 20% of the US population. And of course, we know that in Los Angeles, they are now a, a majority. Uh, Los Angeles also happens to be the home of Hollywood. So you would think that more, uh, there would have been greater attention paid now that- um, People um, of color. People of color are being attended to. The film is directed by John Chu, who is now a Hollywood darling, having made Crazy Rich Asians, which made a ton of dough. And has actually, his son, I think, was, was born during the filming of In the Heights, and his son's middle name is now Heights. <laughs> or Height, I can't remember which. And it is a movie that should... Uh, it's released by Warner Brothers uh, with lots of marketing and lots of anticipatory uh, advertising and has had a very poor opening uh, at the box office and people are a little stumped as to why. There are a number of theories. One is that it's playing on HBO at the same time uh, and people would probably rather stay at home and see it there which is a shame because if ever there was a movie that needs to be seen in a theater, it's this one. It's full of color and uh, nonstop choreography and beautiful cinematography and dance routines. And I'll come back to this because it may be a part of the problem. It opened simultaneously with, or a week after A Quiet Place Part Deux, uh, and which was the nearest thing to a smash hit that the studios have had uh, since the pandemic began. It did very well. So there's that too. Although these are two very different sets of audiences, one would have thought. It may have been a casualty of COVID and that's why people are staying home to watch it. My own theory, um, based on my response to the movie, is that it is very lovely to look at. The dance sequences are great, um, but the storytelling is quite weak, at least that's how I experienced it. it is, it's got a number of, of subplots which are woven together. It's set in um, Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan, which is primarily, but not exclusively, composed of, of uh, people who are either immigrants from the Dominican Republic or the children 
of immigrants from the movie um, from the uh, Dominican Republic. And the lead actor, um, who's played by a new relative newcomer to movies, although he's done a lot of theatre work, named Anthony Ramos, who's an enormously um, charismatic young performer. He's a great dancer, great singer to a little bit for a little bit, um, but also um, a really uh, good actor. And he plays this young Dominican American, um, and we see Lynn Manuel, Lynn Manuel Miranda at the very beginning pushing a drinks cart, <laughs> and he'll return very briefly. But he's really not uh, in the movie. He's more its its creator. The young man's name is Usnavi, and uh, he is agonizing about whether to stay and try and make it out of the poverty of Washington Heights, and realize his dreams or to go back to the Dominican Republic where his late father's very decrepit plot of land and, and buildings are up for sale. Then there's all these sub-stories of poverty, of um, disappointed dreams um, with other characters, uh, also several romances which play in a rather perfunctory manner, including for Os Osnabi, who has fallen in love at the beginning of the movie. There's also a young woman who has dropped out of Stanford um, because it's too expensive. And uh, despite both her um, boyfriend and her parents' uh, disapproval, means to stay in Washington Heights. And there's also uh, an abuela who has her own subplot, an old woman, and she tells the story, uh, both of the Dominican Republic and also um, that community's move to the United States and their, their lives in Washington Heights. The problem is the, the, the stories don't have a great deal of oomph or originality to them. And as a result, the film I experienced the film as one long set of choreographed sequences which are very beautiful and uh, played by a wonderful a wonderful cast um, of singers and dancers um, some of whom come from the area sure I think in the last few days there has been a ruckus about representation in this movie that not enough afro latinx um, I don't like that that word particularly, but that's how it's been presented. Um, are not only underrepresented in the movie, they're basically not represented at all. As a result of this ruckus, Lynn Manuel Miranda published a heartfelt apology, basically fell on his sword and said he should have been more attentive to um, different skin colors and different communities in Washington Heights. And about that, I have very mixed feelings um, because, partly because we are seeing so many fights of that kind. I think that they need to be unpacked because some of them are worthy, and I, I believe that this one is. Um, but I also think we should be very wary of reducing the film arts, painting, whatever, you know, our cultural life to issues of representation. And there are so many people who are vigilantly on the case about the numbers and the color of skin and, and uh, you know, the gender fluidity of the characters that I very much fear that um, 
you know, the actual quality of the artistic product is going to be very much a secondary tertiary or, uh, you know, up to the letter Z factor in, in how movies are, are judged and other art, art forms too. Which is why I say it should be unpacked, because I think it needs to be considered issue by issue and, and case by case. There are lots of reasons for people who love dance, love popular culture, has a lovely score, um, to like this movie. But if you want um, dramatic storytelling, in my view at least, it doesn't really work. In the Heights, the Lynn manuel Miranda musical with young people singing and dancing in Washington Heights, uh, uptown Manhattan, playing now at many movie theaters and on HBO Max. Now for something completely different. Can you recommend something that is not singing and dancing? Well, there's no singing and dancing in this documentary, which is a straight ahead civil rights era story and an extraordinarily powerful one too. It's called The Crime on the Bayou and it's directed by Nancy Bierski, I hope I'm spelling, uh, pronouncing her name right, who made The Rape of Reese Taylor. She's already quite a distinguished uh, documentarian and it's going to be playing at the Lemley Playhouse, the Lumia Music Hall and later on, uh, it's opening this Friday, uh, and then later on it will also be on VOD. It's about a 1966 mid-civil rights era case in which a young, um, unassuming black man, aged 18 years old, but he was already married with a kid, named Gary Duncan, um, was driving past the newly integrated only school in um, a parish on the Mississippi River in Louisiana. And he saw his cousin and his nephew there looking very upset and across the street were a bunch of white boys from this school. He could sense that something was wrong. So he stopped his car and asked what was going on. And there was some kind of fight over no issue at all brewing um, between the white boys and the black boys. And as you can imagine, it was the white boys who started it. So he being a peaceable fellow, and we see a great deal of him then and now in, the, in this documentary, um, just put his hand, brushed his hand on one of the white boys' arms to try and calm the situation. The white boy's parents filed suit <laughs> and he was arrested for assault. Um, now, this will make much more sense if we know that that, that parish was ruled not by anybody elected or appointed, um, but by a, essentially a kingpin, a, a, a crime kingpin. Um, named Leander Perez, who was infamous in the area, both for being racist uh, and um, also for being anti-Semitic, virulently in both cases. And there's extensive footage of him spouting the most unbelievable tripe um, about blacks and Jews. But he was also regarded as a hero because he had siphoned off a great deal of newly found oil into the parish, reviving its fortunes. So there was poor Gary Duncan, poor in every sense, under arrest and, and kept in prison. And uh, a white Jewish civil rights lawyer, one of many who had come to the South at that time to 
um, to help defend uh, blacks. He had a very lucrative job, I, I think, in Washington, um, but he volunteered to come to the South, and he wanted, he thought he was going to be part of the action in Alabama or one of these places where it was going on. Instead, he gets sent to New Orleans um, to deal with Gary Duncan's case, and it turned his life around um, equally to Gary Duncan's. Uh, he became very committed to him. The two became extraordinary friends. And Leander Perez, who really had focused on this case to make an example out of um, a black person in, you know, in the period of, in, of school integration, was absolutely determined to convict. In fact, did convict, also arrested the civil rights lawyer with no, uh, for no reason at all. And most of the white lawyers of the area were in his pocket one way or another, whether politically or financially or both. Well, neither of these two men were having it. And I think Duncan is particularly to be commended because this was a guy with very little education, but he refused the plea bargain. He said, I'm innocent and I'm not going to take a, a plea bargain and this has to be argued all the way. And uh, Sobol was initially horrified, um, but uh, he went along with him and they fought the case all the way to the Supreme Court, where the case was, of course, thrown out. It's a lovely film. It's entirely traditional, but it has a kind of tenderness towards its subject that is extraordinarily moving. And they're both absolutely wonderful men now, you know. Uh, elderly, and in fact, Richard Sobel, although he gives testimony in the present, um, is very, very sick, and he died um, during the making of the movie. The French, the friendship between them is absolutely wonderful. The film has a lovely, jazz, quiet jazz course, um, score, and of course, it harks back to an era when there was a lot of solidarity between blacks and Jews, which I'm sorry to say is much less today than it was uh, than it was then. Um, and that's the reasons for that. Uh, for somebody much more expert than I am, maybe you can shed lights on it, light on it, uh, John. Um, but it's a very inspiring story in which two uh, little guys stood up to a bully and uh, and just continued to stand their ground and a wonderful film that um, that everybody should see. Um, it is at the Lemleys, and uh, eventually, we, I haven't been told when, will be uh, on v VOD, I assume, somewhat, sometime later this summer. That's A Crime on the Bayou, opening this Friday at theaters in Los Angeles. We have time for one more, briefly. Okay, I'll be as brief as I can. We did write, a, uh, when I first joined your show, we talked about a new Netflix show called The Kaminsky Method, um, which I thought was pretty wonderful. And uh, there is a new season um, now that has just opened on Netflix that I binged my way through. It's about a... Um, a failed actor, it's fair to say, who, since he can't, he does teach, <laughs> teach acting, and he's a really wonderful acting teacher. His life is a complete mess, uh, and that is dealt with um, in the first two seasons, which are uh, marvelously varied in, in tone from um, farcical 
comedy to um, uh, drama and, uh, you know, family drama. And the third season is the same, except that there's somebody missing here, which is uh, Alan Arkin, who, who plays Douglas's, um, Kaminsky's best friend, has um, gone the way of all flesh. And Kaminsky is mourning in his own <laughs> very eccentric way, which I probably shouldn't shouldn't reveal. But everybody keeps asking him how he's feeling, and he just wants to be left alone to go through the grieving process into this rather um, amusing scenario, but also very sad, comes his first wife. Um, they split up a long time ago, and she is played by none other than Kathleen Turner. And he did her wrong many, many years ago, but now um, they establish, they reestablish a kind of valued tender friendship which is actually extremely moving even though they're constantly yelling at it at each other um and he she's it turns out that she's quite ill um and he elects to take care of her because it turns out it's a terminal illness but in the meantime their daughter um is getting married to her very weak husband who's played by an almost unrecognizable paul riser and he has a, the most awful mother that you can think of. And he won't stand up to her um, when she constantly berates uh, his daughter and her mother, who's played by Kathleen Turner. So there's a wedding, there is grieving over death. And, uh, you know, that allows for Chuck Lorre, who created the, the series, to uh, indulge his his gift for a, a range of uh, of tones, and it's really quite wonderful. Towards the end, uh, he even allows himself some sentimentality. But it's what I call there's a difference between good sentimentality and rotten sentimentality. <laughs> okay. And here, the good sentimentality really um, focuses on the fact that death uh, for most people doesn't end in people giving speeches and so on. It's an extraordinary mixture between mundanity, comedy, um, and the last, uh, the final opportunity for people, whatever trouble they've had between them, not so much to make up that trouble and redeem it, but just to let it drop away. Wonderful. The Kaminsky Method, starring Michael Douglas, new season with Kathleen Turner, streaming now on Netflix. Ella Taylor is our TV and movie critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Biden's new nominee for ambassador to Israel, a guy named Tom Nides, grew up in Duluth. His father was president of the local reform congregation and his mother taught Hebrew school. His first job was as a college intern for then Vice President Mondale. In that job, his first big assignment was saving a Lake Superior foghorn for the city of Duluth. Today, he's vice president of Morgan Stanley, not to be confused with Morgan Park. That's the company town outside of Duluth that was built by U.S. Steel in 1913 and named after J.P. Morgan, whose grandson founded Morgan Stanley. Morgan Park was deeded to the city of Duluth in 1933, the darkest year of the Depression. This has been your Minnesota Moment. 
a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.